audio teaching is provided by segula.net. You are listening to our study series on Luke Acts. Okay, welcome to session 17 of our series on Luke Acts. We're going to be looking at chapters 8 to 11 of the book of Acts. So we're uh, we're getting close to the the middle of the book, and we're going to be looking at some uh, really important themes that are going to come up. Uh, we're as we'll see the we'll see the message of Yeshua going out to uh, broader and broader spheres in this section. So uh, last time. Last week, we were looking at Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7. And as we saw, this speech was uh, an eloquent denial of the allegations that were brought against Stephen by the false witnesses who claimed that Stephen and Yeshua were teaching against Moses, the Torah, and the temple. And uh, Stephen denies all three, right? Uh, he's, He's like, no, this is not... Uh, in fact, he affirms the temple, he affirms Moses, he affirms the Torah. And more than that, Stephen turns the tables by pointing out that it is the Jewish leaders who have rejected Torah, not the followers of Yeshua, right? Um, and we're going to see this come up repeatedly in Acts. Luke is very careful to depict the followers of Yeshua as Torah observant in contrast to the Jews who reject Yeshua, who do not keep Torah. So uh, that seems to be an important uh, point that Luke is trying to get across. It's actually Yeshua's followers that are truly keeping Torah. Um, Of course, Stephen's opponents didn't appreciate the observation. (laughs) He ends his speech with uh, these words, you who received the Torah as delivered by angels, but did not keep it, right? So first he, he talks about, uh, you know, how you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, resisting the Holy Spirit. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And now they killed, they killed those who announced the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So there's this pattern of rejection, betrayal, and Um, martyrdom that's set up here. Uh, And so Stephen's opponents don't appreciate what he has to say, and he ends up getting killed. A lot of times you hear people say that Stephen was the first martyr. Well, that's not quite true, at least not the way that Luke is telling the story. I mean, yes, he's the first uh, follower of Yeshua to die in the book of Acts, but the way Luke tells it, he is Stephen is simply one of uh, a long line of righteous people who died for their faith, including many of the prophets, John the Baptist, and even Yeshua himself. Uh, so, and then there will be others that will come up throughout the Book of Acts as well. Um, but so Stephen is not the first. Uh, in this line by any means, but he's he's fitting into this pattern, right? 
What's significant about Stephen's martyrdom, however, is, is the effect it has on the early followers of Yeshua. So up until this point, the followers of Yeshua have been flocking to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's like this magnet. There's The movement has been um, centripetal, right? Moving, moving inward toward the center. The death of Stephen sparked an abrupt change to a centrifugal movement outward, right? Now the good news is going out from Jerusalem and spreading out. So uh, in uh, remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Yeshua tells his apostles, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, in uh, sorry, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There's this staged growth that takes place, right? So we've already seen that growth taking place in Jerusalem, while Stephen's death becomes the catalyst for the next phase of expansion. It's going to go out to Judea and Samaria. And in chapter 8, we're going to see especially that growth leading out to Samaria. So God took this terrible event of Stephen's death and used it to accomplish great good and further his mission. Um, all right, let's dive in and we're going to talk, uh, uh, start in chapter 8, verse 1, and look at the after effects of Stephen's death and the message going out to the Samaritans. So I'm going to ask for a volunteer to read, and we're just going to read the first eight verses of chapter 8. So Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Okay, so... We uh, start out uh, at the end of chapter 7, actually, we get introduced to this character named Saul, right? It talks about the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So these are the, the ones, according to Torah, the witnesses are the ones who are supposed to throw the first stone, right? Um, so they're, you know, the... Saul is complicit in Stephen's death, right? And then we get to uh, chapter 8, verse 1, and it makes that point uh, explicit. Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Um, 
And this sparks a great persecution, right? And all were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So in contrast to all the chapters before this, where you've got all these people selling all their possessions to move to Jerusalem, now we have this outward movement that takes place. And uh, of course, it's this is not a good thing that persecution is happening, but God uses it for good to allow the message to spread. So they're going all throughout Judea and Samaria, just like Yeshua said they would. They would be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, so here we have the second phase of expansion. Uh, devout men buried Stephen. Um, this word for devout is evlavis. Um, evlaves. This is the word used of uh, Simeon in Luke chapter 1 when it talks about when uh, Yeshua's parents brought the baby Yeshua to the temple and Simeon comes, says he was a devout man, Evlaves. Um, so these are devout men who buried Stephen. And, uh, and then Saul is ravaging or wreaking havoc on the ecclesia, uh, entering house after house. Uh, so Saul is the, you know, the instigator behind this persecution. And that will become significant uh, as we go on. So uh, then we get, uh, we, we read about the adventures of Philip. Uh, we've already been introduced to Philip back in chapter six. If you recall, with the choosing of the seven deacons, the first one on the list was Stephen. Stephen just got uh, stoned. And now Philip, uh, Luke has us follow the story of Philip a little bit. And where does he go? He goes down to the city of Samaria. Uh, this could be understood as the actual city called Samaria, or this could be understood to be um, the cities of the region of Samaria. It probably makes more sense to take it the latter way. So these are Samaritans he's preaching to. This, this represents uh, a, a step uh, that's different from what has been done so far. So far, the message of Yeshua has been preached to Jews. Now it's being preached to Samaritans as well. And who were the Samaritans, by the way? Uh, were, are the Samaritans Jews or Gentiles? Well, they're kind of in between, right? They're not, they're not quite Jews, but neither are they really Gentiles. There is a bit of uh, mystery surrounding the Samaritans. Who exactly are they and where did they come from? Josephus claims that the Samaritans are the people described in 2 Kings chapter 17. Anyone remember that story? This is when the king of Assyria had exiled the northern kingdom, the northern tribes, and uh, he brought these pagan peoples back to and settled them in the region of the northern kingdom and these pagan peoples were worshiping all these different gods and then there were lions and, and killing them and stuff and they're like oh you, we don't know how to serve the god of this land so he he uh they sent and brought priests 
from the Northern Kingdom to bring them back to that territory and teach these pagans how to follow the God of Israel. And according to uh, Second Kings, they persisted in worshiping all these other gods, even while they claimed to be serving the God of Israel. So Josephus claims that those people, that, that that's where the Samaritans came from. It, it's, it was those people. So they weren't really Jews. They weren't really Israelites. They were pagan peoples who kind of were taught how to follow the God of Israel a little bit, but they got the, some things wrong. Most scholars think that Josephus is wrong <laughs> about that. Uh, most scholars think that uh, this identification of the Samaritans with Second Kings was a later polemic against this schismatic Jewish group. Uh, we're not exactly sure when the Samaritan community started, but probably during the uh, the, Gre the Greek era, the Hellenistic era. So uh, maybe a couple hundred years uh, BCE, right? Uh, and they they followed Torah. The, the, the biggest problem is there's there's some differences between Second Kings seventeen and and what we know about the Samaritans. Uh, the biggest difference is that the Samaritans were not syncretistic. They there's no evidence in Samaritan beliefs that they had mixed had this admixture of pagan theology or practices or things like that. Uh, they seem to be a Jewish sect that separated from the mainstream Jewish community and formed their own temple in on Mount Gerizim. And of course, there are still Samaritans in existence to this day uh, around the area of Mount Gerizim uh, and, and some other places in Israel, but there are not very many left. So yeah, we're not exactly sure where they came from. There's mixed feelings toward them among different Jews. Rabbinic literature basically treats them as basically Jews, but as uh, in some ways their Torah observance is wrong, but in certain particulars their Torah observance is right. So they can be trusted in some things, but not in other things. Um, that's an, a, a strange sort of attitude toward them. Luke actually has a very positive attitude toward the Samaritans, uh, remarkably so. So we see in, in uh, Luke 9, 51 to 56, for example, uh, Yeshua sends his disciples to a uh, city to prepare in, in Samaria to have the disciples prepare a place for him as he's on his way to Jerusalem. But the Samaritans reject Yeshua because he's going to Jerusalem. And so Yeshua, as Yeshua's disciples come to him and say, Master, do you want us to call down fire on them? And Yeshua rebukes them and tells them that, uh, no, we're not going to do that sort of thing. So Yeshua actually has a bit of a, a defensive stance toward them in that, in that instance. Um, this is only uh, found in the Gospel of Luke. The other Gospels don't, don't mention that incident. Then we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. Again, this is only found in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the only one who mentions a Samaritan in his parables. And then in Luke 17, 16, there, there's the story of the 10 lepers that Yeshua heals, and they all go, and, and one of them comes back to give thanks, and it happens to be a Samaritan, right? He's the only one that returns to thank Yeshua. And 
Yeshua refers to him as a foreigner, but there's also a sense of connection there. Uh, we see uh, a similarly positive attitude towards Samaritans in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 4, we have the incident of Yeshua meeting the Samaritan woman at the well, and there's uh, an interesting interchange that goes on there. And that's the chapter where Yeshua tells his disciples, the fields, look around you, the fields are white for the harvest, implying that there is going to be a harvest reaped among the Samaritans. And it says in John 4 that many of the Samaritans believed in him. Then uh, it's interesting to contrast that with what we see in Matthew, Matthew 10, verse 5, uh, Matthew tells his disciples when he sends them out two by two, he says, go nowhere among the Samaritans, but only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which is a little confusing because you might think, well, aren't the Samaritans lost sheep of the house of Israel? It's kind of, it's an ambiguous status that these Samaritans hold, right? They're not, they're not quite Jews, but they're not quite Gentiles either. Uh, at any rate, uh, what we read in, in Acts chapter 8 is in concert with this positive attitude towards Samaritans that we see in, in Luke's writing in general, right? So there was animosity between Jews and Samaritans over the place of worship. If we look at uh, Luke 9.52, it says that this... Uh, the Samaritans uh, did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. The Samaritans had a temple on Mount Gerizim. They said, this, this is the place to worship. The, uh, of course, the Jewish people had their temple in Jerusalem. So the woman at the well in John chapter 4 says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, meaning Mount Gerizim, but you, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And, and Yeshua goes on to talk about worshiping in spirit and truth. But he, he, Yeshua throws in this little tidbit here. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. For the apostles, for the followers of Yeshua, it's very clear that the Jews are the one who is right, who are right on this this dividing issue, right? It's the Jews who uh, have that right. They have the place right. It's Jerusalem. And we've, as we've seen throughout Luke-Acts, the centrality of Jerusalem and the importance of the temple are two big things for Luke, right? It's interesting in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans do not receive the Holy Spirit until the apostles come from Jerusalem and lay their hands on them. If we jump down to verse 14, uh, that when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, it's interesting that Luke emphasizes at Jerusalem, they sent to them Peter and John who came and prayed to them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet follow on it, fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Yeshua. So they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This might imply that the Samaritans had to acknowledge the centrality of Jerusalem and the authority of the Jerusalem-based apostles first, right? So there, this was the barrier that had to be crossed for them, the, uh, recognizing 
that Jerusalem is the true place of worship, not Mount Gerizim. Um, so that's an interesting little detail that Luke adds to the narrative. There is also the fascinating story in this chapter of uh, Simon Magus, Simon the Magician, right? And uh, we won't go into that in detail, but in later traditions, Simon Magus became the granddaddy of Gnosticism. <laughs> so he, uh, Luke is not entirely clear what his fate was after this event, but uh, later traditions embellish on that, on that uh, lacuna in the text and give us lots of details about this guy and all the heresies that he went on to found. Um, anyway, we're not going to delve into that this time. All right, I want us to jump down to verse 26. Um, again, here we have the apostles return to Jerusalem. One thing we're seeing throughout this chapter, and we're going to see that continue up until uh, chapter 12, is the apostles are still in Jerusalem. The apostles are still at the center. They're, they're going out a bit, but they, they, their, um, their headquarters are still in Jerusalem. And we're going to see an interesting uh, shift when we get to chapter 12. Let's uh, hang in for that. All right. Um, so then we have the continuing adventures of Philip. The angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. We're in verse 26 of chapter 8. This is a desert place. Uh, Luke adds that little detail. Uh, so he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And Luke goes on to describe how he's sitting there reading the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He's reading from Isaiah 53, and Philip goes and runs along beside the chariot and strikes up a conversation with him, and he ends up... Uh, leading him to understand that this is talking about Yeshua. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch believes, he's immersed, and he is, uh, and then he, uh, Philip disappears, and uh, the eunuch goes off on his way, rejoicing, and we don't hear about him again. So this is a, an interesting story for multiple reasons. First of all, this guy, as far as we can tell, is not Jewish, and he is also not, uh, not a Samaritan, right? Uh, there are, I, I, I know there are some people who might uh, be tempted to say that uh, maybe this is an Ethiopian Jew. You know, there are the Falasha Jews, uh, the modern uh, Falasha Jews from Ethiopia today the Beta Israel. And these Jews claim to trace their descent from Solomon. Unfortunately, our earliest sources for the existence of Jews in Ethiopia are from the Middle Ages. Uh, and there is no, no mention in rabbinic literature, in uh, er, first, sec, uh, first uh, century literature, 
any literature from that area that there were any Jews in existence in Ethiopia. So if Luke had wanted us to understand this guy to be a Jew, he, he would have had to give us more details than just saying he is an Ethiopian because to a first century reader, Ethiopian would not mean Jew. And as far as we know, there wasn't a Jewish community at that time in Ethiopia. Um, yeah, any more details than that would be speculating. So I won't, I won't dive into that anymore. But uh, what's significant is that not only is he a foreigner, a, a non-Jew, a Gentile, he is a eunuch. Uh, we have, uh, let's look at some passages in, uh, well, let's look first at the Torah, Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. Um, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. It goes on. No one of for, born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. And then no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. And it goes on to talk about other peoples, uh, Edomites, Egyptians, they can enter after the third generation. So this section of scripture, we have, uh, first of all, eunuchs. And secondly, Gentiles, it names specific people groups, but these are foreigners, are forbidden from entering the assembly of the Lord. What exactly does that phrase mean, uh, to enter the assembly of the Lord? Um, that phrase has been understood two different ways, and we have evidence for these two different interpretations even within the, the Tanakh and in early Jewish literature as well. One way of taking that is that it's talking about entering the temple. These people are forbidden from entering the temple. So in uh, Ezekiel, it's going to say that, you know, foreigners are not allowed in the temple. Uh, Nehemiah uh, take, has a similar take on it. Another way of interpreting this phrase is it's talking about marrying into the community of Israel. So in, uh, in First Kings, it talks about how Solomon married all these foreign people, people whom God had said were not, were not to enter the assembly of the Lord, meaning that there, you know, that passage is interpreting this as applying to uh, intermarriage. And that's the way later rabbinic Judaism understood this passage. Dead Sea Scrolls understand it to be talking about the temple. So these two different interpretations go side by side. Uh, but what's significant is that a eunuch is not supposed to be allowed to enter the temple and or marry into the Israelite community. What do we see in Acts chapter 8? That he was, this Ethiopian eunuch had come to Jerusalem to worship. So immediately as we're reading this, we're we're thinking about these passages in the Torah, right? Where there's this exclusion of eunuchs and foreigners, right? That takes us to another passage. And that passage is Isaiah 56. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come. My righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. And then Isaiah goes on to talk about two specific types of, types of people that we would not expect to fit in with this category of being blessed. 
right? First, he says, let not the foreigner, in Hebrew, it's ben hanechar. Uh, this is a person of foreign descent. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This passage is fascinating to me in the level of inclusion it offers these people, right? I mean, it recognizes that there's this, these people have this sense of exclusion, which has has some basis in Torah, but was taken further, I think, than even the Torah says by uh, by certain groups in Israel or among the Jewish community. So the the eunuchs and the foreigners are included in the Sabbath. They're included even in the covenant. I mean, this is this is amazing. Uh, talking about foreigners holding fast to my covenant. And some Bible scholars would look at that and say, but the covenant wasn't made with them. The covenant was made with Israel, right? God said, uh, the Sabbath is a sign between me and Israel of my covenant with Israel. But here, these foreigners are being included in that covenant. A lot of scholars see echoes of this passage in the book of Acts here. We Here we have a eunuch. He's come to Jerusalem to worship. And this, I mean, this just screams of Isaiah 56, right? Uh, we're, we're immediately drawn to that passage to think of uh, this kind of uh, this this prophetic vision for a time to come when eunuchs and foreigners will be offered this level of inclusion in the temple and a place a memorial a name a lasting name in that place and that's significant in the book of acts because here we have a description of a eunuch coming to faith in chapter 10 we have a description of a foreigner coming to faith. And these two passages so close together in the book of Acts, I believe are both drawing on Isaiah 56 here. So, yeah, Let, let's touch on this just briefly. In when we get to chapter 10, we're going to see, we're going to read about the story of Cornelius. Uh, Cornelius was a Gentile God-fearer, uh, a, a non-Jew, who was sympathetic to Judaism. And we're going to read about the social stigma against close fellowship with Gentiles that Jews had, right? Peter was uh, almost scandalized at the thought of entering 
Cornelius's house, even though this was this was not just your average pagan Joe Blow Gentile. This was a Gentile who was righteous and God fearing, who was following the God of Israel and worshiping him exclusively. And yet there is this stigma against Gentiles. So it it raises the question, how come there is the stigma against Cornelius, but not against this Ethiopian eunuch here? Uh, how come that doesn't cause any waves, right? Uh, the Cornelius incident is, is causes waves that reverberate throughout the book of Acts. Uh, this event just seems to kind of come and go and no one makes a big fuss about it. Well, uh, two things I think uh, that are related to this. First of all, he, uh, this guy immediately goes back to his homeland, right? So, which makes the issue of ongoing fellowship between Jewish and Gentile believers, a non-issue, right? It's not, it's not an issue. A second point is that Philip, as far as we can tell, is a Greek-speaking Jew, a Hellenistic Jew, right? And from based on the evidence we have, there was more tolerance among the Jews in the diaspora, the Jews outside of the land of Israel, for Gentile God-fearers who remain uncircumcised, uh, who, who are sympathetic toward Judaism. There is more tolerance for that sort of thing. It seems like in the land of Israel, there is more insistence that, you know, you have to become circumcised or we can't associate with you um, among Jews in the first century. So that's another possibility. Philip may have been uh, a little more, uh, more used to interacting with non-Jews than uh, people like Peter, who was from Galilee, from the land of Israel. Another point is that this guy, uh, I mean, depending on the nature of his castration, circumcision may have been irrelevant in his case, right? Uh, Luke uh, doesn't, it, the way he tells the story, it was not an issue in this case. So, all is to say we've we've got uh, this pattern that's being set and it's based on Isaiah 56 and we're going to see that come back as we get to Acts chapter 10. But before we get to Acts chapter 10, we have a very significant interlude and that takes place in Acts chapter 9. The story of this mysterious Saul of Tarsus. Who is this guy? Let's look at this passage, Acts chapter 9. And again, I don't think we'll read the whole passage because I do want to get on to chapter 10. Uh, there's some important stuff to get through there. So let's, uh, I just want to uh, point out a couple highlights from this. This Acts chapter 9 tells the story of the transformation of Saul, right? We have the fiercest opponent of Yeshua's followers some, suddenly becomes their fiercest proponent, right? So Saul's on his way to Damascus. He's got these letters from the high priest in Jerusalem, uh, giving him permission to arrest anyone who believes in Yeshua in the synagogues there, which, uh, by the way, as an aside, it's interesting that the believers are still in synagogues, right? Uh, otherwise, that would make these letters less effective. So he's, he's on his way to Damascus, and then there's this bright light that comes, 
and blinds him and he hears this voice saul saul why are you persecuting me and he says who are you lord he i mean this was a disorienting encounter for him and then he hears the words i am yeshua whom you are persecuting and that turned his world upside down uh, immediately he realizes that what he thought he knew is is nothing right and so it goes on he, he comes into damascus he has to be led in because he's blind and ananias this this righteous uh torah observant follower of yeshua named ananias comes and uh lays his hands on saul the scales fall from his eyes and suddenly he can see both physically and spiritually he can see clearly for the first time in his life and he begins immediately it says uh where are we down in verse 20 22 saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the jews who lived in damascus by proving that yeshua was the messiah uh so he was you know just like just like stephen i mean this this reminds us a bit of stephen before right how he was just so good at at uh at demonstrating that yeshua was the messiah and what happened the same thing that happened to stephen happens to him the jews plotted to kill him um and they were watching the gates to kill him but the, the disciples let him down through an opening in the wall and he escaped so not only does he go from being an opponent to a proponent he goes from being persecutor to persecuted he keeps getting in trouble because he's just so good at preaching yeshua First, they try to kill him in Damascus. Then he comes to Jerusalem, and immediately he mimics Stephen by preaching to the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, right? He spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him again, just like Stephen, right? This is like deja vu all over again. Um, that didn't go well for Stephen, and it doesn't go well for Saul. So, uh, But this time, he escapes, and they send him off to first they take him down to caesarea and send him off to tarsus his hometown that's where he's from it's up on the the northern shore of the mediterranean sea at the bottom of uh, the asia minor in that region uh, and then we get this verse verse 31 so the ecclesia throughout all judea and galilee and samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the lord and in, in the comfort of the holy spirit it multiplied so now that Saul is a safe distance away. Finally, there's some peace and quiet. And uh, the persecution that started after the stoning of Stephen has, has come to a, a, a lull, right? As we'll see later, persecution picks up again later, but for now there's peace. So by the end of chapter nine, uh, uh, the rest of chapter nine, we read some adventures of Peter as he goes around Judea and Samaria. Uh, but by the end of chapter 9, we see the good news has spread in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, right? So this is, this is almost everything that Yeshua had talked about. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. The, all that's been fulfilled already, and now we're set up for the last phase of expansion, this final stage to the ends of the earth. And that's where 
Luke is about to take us. So um, one quick note about this passage on Saul before we jump there is this chapter records Saul's transformation uh, from the persecutor to persecuted, from opponent to proponent. Uh, a lot of times in conventional Christian circles, they depict this as Paul's conversion from Judaism to Christianity. We don't see any of that going on here. What we see is him being changed from a opponent of Yeshua to a faithful follower of Yeshua. But we don't see a change in, for example, his stance on following Torah. As we'll see throughout the book of Acts, Luke is goes uh, above and beyond the, uh, what's necessary to demonstrate that, that Paul continues to follow Torah. Also, uh, we encounter that, I mean, Luke's been calling this guy Saul all this time, right? And he'll continue calling, calling him Saul up until chapter 12. In the middle of chapter 12, finally, we find out that this guy's name is also Paul. Why does Luke do this? Uh, a lot of people have assumed that, well, God changed his name to Paul after he became a believer, but that's not what happens, right? I want to suggest that Luke is intentionally using the name Saul throughout here because he knows that his readers already know who Paul is. If he if he if he used the name Paul, they'd be like, oh yeah, we know that guy. Right? I, I my suggestion is that Luke is writing to the believers in perhaps in Rome. That would make sense based on where the book of Acts ends. It ends with Paul in Rome. And I'm thinking that his readers know what happens to Paul after that point. They know the rest of the story. And so by introducing this character as the under the name Saul, he leaves this element of susp suspense and surprise. I think Luke's a very skillful writer because it's not until chapter 12 that suddenly he drops the bomb that, man, this guy is Paul. This is the guy we all know about, right? And suddenly all these lights go on and it clicks and you you see what we've already read in a whole new light. Anyway, that's my theory. I don't know if there are very many other people who would support that theory, but I think it makes sense. Okay, let's jump to chapter 10 and talk about Cornelius. And I'm going to ask someone to read, uh, let's read the first eight verses. Uh, would someone be willing to do that? Uh, Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 8. Okay. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius... And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, 
he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Great, thanks. So here we have Cornelius. He is a centurion. He's a Gentile, but he is a God-fearer. He is one who uh, is sympathetic toward Judaism and the God of Israel, and he uh, is... Um, it, later on in the chapter, it talks about how he is righteous, uh, it talk, calls him devout. Uh, there's these different uh, descriptions that we see of this guy. So what we have here is, first of all, um, Cornelius has this vision, right? And uh, it's a vision to go and send for Peter. As we'll read in the next verses, Peter has a vision that tells him to go ahead and go to Cornelius. This mirrors what we just saw in chapter 9. Back in chapter 9, verses 10 to 16, there is a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So there's an interesting parallel between these two chapters, right? Uh, in chapter 9 and in chapter 10, both chapters relate a double vision. The, the guy who's in need of help gets a vision of this other person who's going to help them is going to come. Then uh, the guy who's supposed to come gets a vision telling him it's okay for you to go. Both Saul and Cornelius were praying when they received their vision. Of course, Peter was praying too when he receives his vision. But um, yeah, so there's, a, there's this, this theme that's going on here, right? Both Ananias and Peter object to their vision. So Ananias objects. He says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. As we'll see, Peter, you know, God sends this vision. Peter objects and says, hey, hey, hold on here. There's, you know, um, they, they both object. And both visions and both events have something to do with the message going out to Gentiles. As we read, uh, the Lord said to him, go for he is talking about Saul or Paul. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So the, I think Luke sets these two chapters in parallel for a reason. Also, both chapters, uh, well, um, this, the story of, Saul's transformation uh, at Damascus is retold throughout the book of Acts. It comes up three times, right? So we have this story and it's told three on three separate times. That means it's significant. The story of Cornelius is also retold three times, right? So both stories don't appear just once. They appear um, three times. So both are significant. That suggests that 
a major purpose for Luke in writing the book of Acts is to defend both the inclusion of Gentiles in the ecclesia and the calling of Peter, or sorry, the calling of Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles. All right, so let's jump down to Peter's vision. So Peter's, uh, Cornelius sends men to go get Peter. Meanwhile, Peter has a vision. Uh, he's up on the housetop, he's praying, he becomes hungry, and while they're making the food, he has a trance, and he sees something, an object, like a great sheet, coming down uh, from heaven uh, by its four corners. And inside it are all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds of the air. This is following the Torah's categorization of animals, right? You've got land animals, you've got creeping things. Uh, this translation says reptiles, but in Greek it's Erpeta, that like means to creep along, right? Um, so land animals, creeping things, and birds of the air. Those are the three categories of non-marine life that we read about in the Torah. In creation story, in Leviticus 11, that's the way it's categorized. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter objects. He says, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Okay, what, is this, uh, what does this vision mean? This is the passage of scripture that most Christians point to, to say, this is why believers don't need to keep the Torah's dietary laws. This is why it's okay to eat pork and shellfish and why those laws don't really apply anymore. Uh, in fact, some scholars are, I mean, F.F. Bruce is an example. He's a famous scholar that wrote a commentary on the book of Acts. He says, this was in effect an abrogation of ceremonial food laws and much else of the same character. So, you know, he just kind of sweeps aside everything else in the Torah along with the dietary laws. I mean, why not, right? Um, none of the rest matters once we can eat pork. Uh, I, I don't think... Uh, the, there are some major problems with this interpretation. First and foremost is the fact that Luke, as we'll see, is careful to describe followers of Yeshua as consistently Torah observant throughout the book of Acts. Second, uh, and, and this is something a, a, many scholars are, a growing number of scholars are questioning the idea that Luke intends to signal the abrogation of the dietary laws here. Uh, so there are a couple details in this story that indicate that Luke sees no conflict between Peter's vision and the continued practice of kashrut, the laws of uh, regulating diet in the Torah. So first of all, here's an important detail. God never commands Peter to eat an unclean animal. Verse 12 specifies that the sheet was filled with all kinds of land animals, creeping things, and birds of the air, right? That means it's filled with clean and, and unclean animals. Uh, so in theory, Peter could have obeyed the divine voice and gone and slaughtered a clean animal, right? Uh, without any transgression of the dietary law. So there's nothing in the command to rise, kill, and eat that necessarily implies 
breaking the dietary laws. So, um, so that's one major point. The second is that Peter, he describes, uh, he says, I have never eaten anything common or unclean. A lot of scholars assume that those two words are synonyms and he's just saying the same thing twice, right? Never eaten anything unclean or unclean. But the word common in Greek, it's the word kunos. Here it's kunon ke akatharton. Akatharton is like uh, unclean, right? It's used throughout the Septuagint to translate the Hebrew tame, unclean or impure, uh, meaning ritual impurity, right? Kunon uh, is used to mean common. It can mean, it's the same word, by the way, that we had back in chapter two and in chapter four when it says that they had all things in common, right? So it can mean common in a good sense. It can also mean common in the sense of not holy, right? Common is the opposite of holy. Uh, there's holy and common, clean and unclean. Those are those are two overlapping but separate uh, separate uh, spheres that are uh, we find in the Torah, right? So when Peter refers to some of the animals as common, he's talking about the clean animals in the sheet. Uh, a number of interpreters have suggested that this term common refers to that which is defiled by association, right? Um, the point is that he's he's rejecting even the things that God had made clean because it's it's guilty by association, right? It's just all he sees is this indiscriminate mixture of animals. And he's like, no, I'm not going there. I'm not touching it. And what that means is that it is Peter's failure to distinguish between clean and unclean by dismissing everything as defiled that God is rebuking in this in this vision, right? The passage nowhere suggests that Peter is remiss for desiring to maintain the laws of Kashrut. And actually, uh, Peter's response should make us think of Ezekiel chapter 4. I want to just take a quick look at that. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 4, uh, God tells him, God tells the prophet, you shall eat uh, a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. And the Lord said, thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself from my youth up till now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat ever come into my mouth. Then he said to me, see, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung on which you may prepare your bread. So there's some similarities between this, vi this vision, Ezekiel's vision and Peter's vision, right? In both cases, God gives a command and the person receiving the vision objects. And he objects by saying, I've never eaten stuff that I'm not supposed to, right? Ezekiel gives three categories. Uh, he refers to I've never eaten nevila, which means an, an animal that's died, a carcass, uh, trefa, that's an animal that's been torn, or where is it here? Uh, basar pigul. Uh, pigul is it's translated tainted. It refers to uh, sacrificial meat that's been left too long because according to Torah, you have to eat a peace offering uh, by the second day 
Uh, anything left over has to be burned. If you eat it after that, it's called pigul. It's a transgression of Torah to eat it. Or with the Passover lamb, for example, you're not allowed to leave any of it even until the next day. And if you do, that is called pigul. So there's these three categories of meat that, that Ezekiel says he has abstained from. What's really interesting is that these three categories bear a striking resemblance to precisely what is forbidden to Gentile believers in the apostolic decree in Acts 15. We're going to see that when we get to Acts 15, but when the disciples say uh, forbid strangled things, the, the uh, Gentile believers are not to eat strangled things, that's drawing on the Torah's category of nevela and trefa. And so by, by uh, the, the connection to that passage here is that uh, the, the Gentile followers of Yeshua are soon going to be required to keep the same dietary laws that Ezekiel did and that Peter did, right? So this passage is not trying to slough off the laws of kosher by any means. All right. So God never commands Peter to eat and kill an unclean animal. Peter uses the word common to refer to the clean animals in the sheep, sheet. And then number three, Peter remains perplexed at the meaning of the vision, right? After he's had this vision, uh, it says Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what it might mean. Uh, and then the men from Cornelius come. And while Peter was still pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Go and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Luke is intentionally delaying offering an interpretation of the vision as, as part of his narrative strategy. When Luke finally does provide an interpretation of the vision, the meaning of the vision is explicitly stated to apply to people, not to dietary laws. Um, you yourselves know, Peter says in verse 28, how unlawful or... Uh, how taboo it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Uh, and then down in verse 34, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Just as Peter had failed to acknowledge the pure status of the clean animals in his vision, so was he and the other Jewish believers prone to exclude uncircumcised God-fearers without recognizing the distinction between them and pagans, right? Cornelius was not your average Gentile. He was not, not a, a pagan idolater. He was a God-fearing, righteous Gentile. And God's message is, you know, you can't just look at all these animals in the sheet and dismiss them all. Some of them I made clean, right? Those are the Gentiles that God has cleansed. These, these righteous Gentiles are morally cleaned, clean and should not be lumped together with idolaters. Um, the, the message, by the way, here, and I think some interpreters get this, get this wrong, uh, the message is not that God has cleansed all the Gentiles, right? Uh, it makes that clear in verse 35. Those who fear him and do, this says, do what is right. In, in Greek, it says, who does righteousness, the keosunin, who practices righteousness. Uh, elsewhere in Luke, 
that term is used to describe Torah, right? Those who follow God, who fear God and follow his commandments, those are the ones who are acceptable to him. It's not that now Jews should happily mix and rub shoulders with all Gentiles everywhere, you know, including outright pagans. The point is that God has cleansed these Gentiles because they have placed their faith in him. Okay, so fourth and finally, Peter never does transgress the Torah's dietary laws. Neither in the vision nor in the narrative that follows does Peter ever actually eat an unclean animal, right? It doesn't say that Peter got up and slaughtered a pig and had a ham sandwich. And when he gets to Cornelius's house, I mean, this guy is a righteous man. He's familiar with Judaism. He's not going to serve pork to this esteemed Jewish visitor. I'm going to say that Cornelius himself probably did not eat pork. So all that to say, what's at stake in this chapter is not diet, but the possibility of uncircumcised Gentile believers being admitted into close fellowship with Jewish believers. Gentiles who have placed their faith in the God of Israel have been cleansed through that faith. Uh, it may still be inadvisable to have close dealings with inveterate pagans, but the barrier preventing table fellowship between Jews and righteous Gentiles is neither necessary nor scriptural. For Peter to associate with righteous Cornelius is no transgression of Torah. Uh, a quick note about chapter 11. Let's, we're not going to read it all, obviously, but if we jump down, when uh, Peter gets back to Jerusalem, uh, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Note that their criticism is not what Peter ate, it's with whom he ate, right? They're criticizing Peter for having close dealings with Gentiles. And so Peter tells the story. And Luke has Peter relate the whole thing again, right? Instead of just saying, Peter told them what happened, <laughs> it actually spells it all out, right? And of course, the clincher for Peter, as it was in chapter 10, and as it is for these guys, the clincher is the spirit being poured out. That happened in chapter 8 on the Samaritans. And it happens again here in chapter 10. While Peter is still talking, the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius and his household and all who were there. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. I mean, this up to this point in Acts, this was not something they had even conceived of. The apostles, the followers of Yeshua had not, it had not dawned on them that Gentiles could receive the Holy Spirit. It had not dawned on them that God's plan was to uh, bring these Gentiles in to be part of the ecclesia, the assembly of God's people. And so this came as a shock. And there's an argument, uh, a Torah-based logical argument that follows from this. Because according to Torah, like I mentioned before, you have things that are holy and common, and you have things that are clean and unclean. Something can be holy 
and clean, or something can be common and clean, or common and unclean. But you can never have something that is holy and unclean at the same time. Does that make sense? If something is holy, it has to be clean. If a holy item becomes unclean, it is defiled and profaned. Not just defiled, not just profaned, but both. Uh, so the fact that the Holy Spirit, this is, this is the Holy Spirit of God, was poured out even on these Gentiles was definitive proof that they were clean in God's eyes. God had cleansed them through their faith. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Luke Acts is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him. And together, may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.